Father, we do thank you. We praise you, Lord. You're such an awesome God. And we're so blessed that we can know the creator of the universe in an intimate and a personal way. And Father, I pray as we look at the most awesome act of love in the history of all mankind this morning, as we look at the crucifixion, that Father God, it truly would not just be a ritual. It would not just be something that people wear around their neck, but we would truly understand just the total awesome work that happened upon the cross, the greatest act of love and the word to reunite sinful man with the holy God. So Lord, we love you. We ask that you would be our teacher this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Those of you, if you're first time here, welcome to Calvary Santa Cruz. What we typically are doing right now in our midweek study, we're going verse by verse through the entire Old Testament. And on Sunday mornings, we're going verse by verse through the New Testament. And this morning, we come to Mark chapter 15. So if you have your Bible, turn to Mark 15. And I'm going to take a couple minutes just to catch you up. Last couple weeks, we saw, the Ju- we saw the betrayal of Judas. Judas was one of the men who walked with Jesus for over three years. He had all the religious trimmings. He looked like a man. If, when, they, when Jesus said someone was going to betray him, none of them knew who it was. And the reason was is he acted like the disciples. He cast out demons in his name. He probably performed miracles. He was there everywhere that Jesus went, but yet he was still not truly a believer. And that just goes to show us and should be a warning to us in the church that just because we go to church doesn't make us a Christian any more than jumping in the ocean makes us a fish. Amen? I mean, it's, all, it's about having a relationship with God. Then we saw that Jesus, Jesus was put on trial by the religious leaders of the day. The most religious people of the day, the high priests and the scribes, put the Savior of the universe on trial. And they put him on trial and he was convicted for proclaiming himself to be God. They said he was a blasphemer and they tore their clothes. We know that the reaction to him was that they spit in his face, that they beat him, and that they mocked him. And one of the things I pointed out a couple weeks ago when we looked at that passage was that I believe that's still happening today. I believe the religious, there are many religious leaders today that are still spitting in Jesus' face. And you might say, what do you mean by that? When they say that Jesus Christ alone is not sufficient for salvation, that is spitting in Jesus' face. When they deny that he is God, that is beating Jesus. It's no different today when you have religious leaders who are calling people unto themselves, who are touching the glory of God instead of pointing people to Jesus Christ alone. We're going to see this morning that it's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Amen? It's through him alone. It's only through him that we can be saved. There's no other way. Then we saw Peter deny Jesus and weep. We saw Judas betray Jesus. Then we saw Peter deny Jesus. And you know what? The bad news is that Peter denied the Lord, but the good news is is that it's such an awesome picture of grace because we know that it says in Luke 22, 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, that Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Right after Peter cursed and said, I don't know God, Peter's greatest area of strength became his downfall. He said, this young girl says to him, you're one of them. And he said, no, I'm not. And it says in the Bible that he cursed. And at the very moment that he denied the Lord for the third time, it says that he looked up across and he saw Jesus who had already been beaten. His face had been beaten. He'd been spit upon. He met the eyes of Jesus and he went away and wept bitterly. But the good news is that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, one of the things he said was, go tell my disciples and especially Peter that I've risen. Our God is a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy. He's a God of 10th, 50th, 100th, and 1 millionth chances. Amen? That's our God. And then tonight we're going to, then lastly what we saw was we saw Jesus face Pilate last week. 
And we saw how Pilate didn't want to make a decision about Jesus in a way. He washed his hands of Jesus. Remember that? He told Jesus, he sent him off to Herod. Let Herod deal with him. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to have to make a decision about Jesus Christ. But here's the reality, that Jesus Christ was sent back, and Pilate eventually had to make a decision about Jesus Christ. Just like every one of us in this room is going to have to make a decision about Jesus Christ. Amen? No decision is a decision. We can't just wash our hands of God and act like he's not there. We need to make a decision about him. So tonight we're going to look at the greatest act of of love and all of mankind, the cruel and brutal death of our Savior when he died upon the cross. I'm going to backtrack a few verses and cover a couple things we looked at last week. So let's begin in verse 15. We're going to look at Jesus' death upon the cross. It said, So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Now Mark and the other gospel writers are going to record the historical facts of the crucifixion. Then we'll see that the rest of the New Testament will record the theological explanation of why Jesus died on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, it tells us that Jesus died for our sins. That's why he died. You know, I've, I've, had, I've, I've talked to different people and, and I've said to them, why, why do you go to church if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the answer? Well, I believe that I need to be a good person and it helps strengthen me in being a good person. That all might be true, but here's the reality. Why did Jesus die on the cross if you could be good enough to go to heaven without him? Amen? Why was there a crucifixion if I could get there by just going to church? If I could get there by keeping good deeds? Or if I could get there by being a good person? Why did he go through the most torturous death in the history of all mankind? The Bible clearly tells us that he went there to pay for our sins. Then it says in that verse that he was scourged. And I'm not going to take as much time as I did last week, but I know there were some people that weren't here last week, and I just want to catch you up. Scourging was one of the most brutal things imaginable. When somebody was scourged, what they did is they took a, a whip called a flagellum, and they took it and it had 13, 12 or 13 strands. And on that, they would put lead balls at the very end, then they would embed metal and glass all along these throngs of leather. And then they would take the person and they would bind their wrist and bind their feet and they would be hanging off of the ground so they could not defend themselves, strap them to a pole. Then they would take this whip and they would go from a great distance and they would lash and it would grab onto the skin and when they would pull back, it would bring skin with it. By the fifth, sixth, or seventh lash, your body was just tore open. And literally organs would be exposed. And it's, we know that the average they would lash was 39 lashes was the average. Most people died from being scourged. By the time they were done scourging them, they would let them loose and they would fall in a puddle of their own blood and lay on this concrete. And that's what they did to our Savior. They scourged Him. You can read that word scourge and think it's not much of it. But you know what? Jesus didn't die because He wasn't done yet. He still was going to go to the cross to pay the ultimate price. So Jesus, of course, He did not die. So the soldiers stood Him up and they began to mock Him. Look what it says in verse 16. Then the soldiers led Him away to the hall called the Praetorium and they called together the whole garrison A whole garrison would be 600 plus soldiers. They clothed him with purple and twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. We talked last week about the fact that they mocked him as being king of the Jews. And so because they were convicting him of being king of the Jews, they mocked him as a king. So they put a purple robe, which would be a priestly robe, upon him. Then they took a crown of thorns. And we talked last week that thorns is a representation of what? It's sin. In the Garden of Eden, it says that when Eve, Adam and Eve sinned, that it was then that thorns came into existence. 
So thorns, there were no thorns before sin in the garden. And thorns are a representation of sin, and they were pressing the sin of all mankind upon the head of our Savior Jesus Christ. Then they spit on Him, it says. Look at verse 18. And they began to salute Him. Hail, King of the Jews. They mocked Him. Then they struck Him on the head with a reed and sped on Him. And bowing a knee, they worshipped Him. They worshipped Him mockingly. You know, I've seen people do that. I don't know if you've ever seen people do that where they mock Jesus. Or they mock God in the way that they worship. But the reality is, before it's all over, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there will be no mocking. Amen? And we can confess Him now, or we can confess Him in eternity. Isaiah 50, verse 6, it says this, and this is a fruition of what happened here to Jesus Christ. It says, I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheek to those who plucked out my beard, and I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. You know, it's interesting, if you look at Isaiah 50, 51, 52, 53, and Psalm 22, you see a clear picture of the crucifixion 500 years before crucifixion existed, and over a thousand years before Jesus went to the cross. How is that possible? Because the Word of God was written by God. Amen? And because the whole Word of God is still sufficient for today. Then they look, verse 20, it says, And when they had mocked Him, they took the purple off of Him, put His clothes on Him, and led Him out to crucify Him. They took the robe off, and it would rip away all that blood and stuff that had dried upon His body. They ripped it away from Him, causing Him great and excruciating pain. And it says they led Him out to crucify Him. Now let me talk to you about crucifixion. It was the most shameful and painful way that any man could ever die. It was so degrading that this form of capital punishment was never even mentioned in society. It would be like a foul thing to even talk about because it was so crude. Roman executioners had perfected this art of slow torture while keeping the victim alive. Crucifixion's whole point was keep them alive as long as we can so they can suffer as much pain as they can and as much humiliation as they can before they die. And that's the way that Jesus Christ was put to death. Some victims even lingered long enough to where they were eaten by birds or wild animals. Most hung on the cross for days before dying. At some point, what would happen is when you were crucified, they would take and they would nail you to the cross. They would nail you through your, through your feet and through, through basically through the instep or the Achilles tendon. And then they would nail your hands. And what would happen is that you would have to struggle for every breath. You would have to lift up because your diaphragm would be falling down upon your chest. And so you'd have to lift yourself up. But every time you did, it would rip away at your feet and would rip away at your hands. And your body was in excruciating pain. So this was nonstop pain for days. At the same time, Jesus again had been scourged. So his whole body was ripped open. His bare back was pressed against that hard wood. And every time he moved up and down, it was excruciating pain. And yet he did that out of love for us. I've heard people say, why do they call that Good Friday? Because it's such a, a torturous and treacherous thing. And you're right, it was a heinous act. But it was also Good Friday because through that alone, we, we can be saved. Amen? Because he did that for us out of his love for us. How do you determine the worth of something? By what somebody's willing to pay for it. Usually what would happen is it would get so torturous and times when they wanted to hasten their death because they were moving up and down, they would come in and break their legs. Because once your legs were broken, you couldn't lift your body up anymore and your body would fall over upon its, your diaphragm and you would suffocate. That's the kind of death that our Savior was led away to. It says they led Him away to crucify Him. He'd been awake all night. He'd been scourged and abused by soldiers. And he began to carry his cross. In John 19, 17, it says that he carried his own cross. 
And as he'd be carried, can you imagine our Savior? He's been scourged, he's been beaten, he's been up all night, he's been mocked, he's been spit upon. He's been... And again, all, the, all along, our Savior, he is God. Jesus Christ is God. Amen? He's 100% man and 100% God. He could have called a legion of angels out of the sky and smoked everybody, but he didn't do it. You know what? Jesus Christ did not have to go to the cross, but he went there freely. Nobody put him on the cross. He laid down his life of his own free will, the Bible says. And so we see here that they led him away to be crucified, and he was carrying his own cross. And we see his humanity here because as he's carrying this big, heavy cross, another act of humiliation, because he's got the thorns around him. He's got hanging around his neck a placard of his accusation, which we're going to look at in just a minute. And then he's carrying his cross, again, only for the most heinous of criminals. And what crime had he done? He'd simply said, I'm God. That's the crime that he committed. He told the truth. And he's going to the cross. And as he carried the cross, he fell over. And as he was carrying the cross and walking along, they were lined up along the street, men and women, mocking Jesus. You know, it's amazing to me, just four days earlier when Jesus came into Jerusalem, they were singing, Hosanna! Glory to God in the highest. Hosanna means save us now, we pray. But when Jesus came and didn't overthrow Rome the way they wanted him to, now they cried out, crucify him. Now they're mocking him. And a lot of people come to God with their own agenda. You know, Lord, I want to serve you as long as you give me what I want. But if you're not going to be the kind of God I'm looking for, then enough with you. I don't want you if you're not going to give me the things I want. That's the world that we live in today. So they're crying out. They're lined up along the streets. And in the middle of them, look at verse 21. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Now Simon of Cyrene, which is basically northern Africa or Libya today, was a Jewish proselyte. He had saved his money and journeyed a great distance to celebrate Passover. Remember again, the crucifixion happened at the time of Passover. Passover was the feast that was in remembrance of them being delivered out of the bondage of Egypt when the angel of death passed over and anybody in that home did not die because of the blood that was on the doorpost and on the mantle, which was a picture of what? The cross. Now, here we are hundreds of years later, and they're celebrating Passover, this great feast. It had been foreordained before the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ would die on the very day when they looked back and remembered Passover, because He is the perfect Lamb of Passover. So they're lined up along the streets, and this man had come from a great distance. It may have been his trip of a lifetime, because this was a long ways. And he'd saved all his money, he comes into town, and what does he find? He finds controversy. He finds in Jerusalem, there's all this upheaval in the streets, people crying out, crucify him. Barabbas has been let go while Jesus is going to be crucified. And in the midst of him standing along the streets, the man coming down with a cross on his back stumbles right in front of him. In those days, if a Roman soldier were to put his spear upon your shoulder or to point to you, he could ask you to carry his burden for several miles. He could say, I want you to carry my stuff for the next five miles. And you had no choice but to do it. And Simon is standing there. And Jesus falls down right in front of him. And the soldier comes over and puts the spear upon him and says, you, come pick up his cross. That is an absolute picture of the fact that we are the ones who deserve the cross. Amen? 
We are the ones who are sinners. We are the ones who should have been mocked and beaten and scourged for our sins. We are the ones who should have been carrying our own cross because we are in need of a Savior. We're sinners. We're deserving of death because of our wickedness. You know what? A lot of us, again, people struggle with that. They say, Pastor Dave, you're telling me that I'm a bad person. No, here's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you you're a sinner and you're in need of a Savior. And so am I. Amen? Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and all means all, not some. None righteous, no, not one. There's only been one perfect and that was Jesus Christ. And that's why He's the only one that can pay the price for all of mankind. Imagine being Simon. You're standing there on the side of the road and someone points to you and says, pick up his cross and carry it. You might have thought, what? wait a minute, I'm here on vacation. I'm here for the feast. Now all of a sudden I have to be ridiculed with a criminal? I have to carry his cross? I have to take up his burden? What seemed like such, it must have seemed like such an incredible trial. But you know what? This was the defining moment in the life of Simon. Was there anything greater he was ever going to do in the rest of his life than what he was doing right now? You know, sometimes we look at our life and we're going through struggles and we're going through trials and we're going through difficulty and we don't think it's fair and we wonder why. Why is this happening to me? But yet God will use it for his glory if you will let him. Amen? It can be the defining moment of your life. You might not understand, but know that God is in control. The Jews were in a hurry, so not to defile Passover with dead bodies. They wanted to get Jesus to the cross as quickly as they could. But what again, initially was a great trial. You know what? Simon, later we see in the text of both in Mark and the writings of Paul, became a believer in Jesus Christ. It was the greatest day of his life was when they told him to come on out and pick up that cross. The Bible also tells us the same thing. If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Amen? So praise the Lord for Simon. Praise the Lord that God put him there. And praise the Lord he was obedient. He went to Jerusalem to sacrifice his Passover lamb, and instead he met the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for him. He showed up to make sacrifice, and instead he met the sacrifice. Amen? And I love it when people come seeking religion and they find a relationship. Isn't that good? Because a lot of times that's what people want. They come, they, oh, I've got to do the ritual. Oh, it's Easter. Oh, it's Christmas. Somebody invited me. Well, maybe I should go and be polite. And they go to do the ritualistic thing and they go to fulfill the sacraments and then they find out it's not about that. It's about a relationship with the Savior of the universe. Amen? What an awesome thing. And here he went to make sacrifice and he met the sacrifice. What an awesome, what an awesome thing. What a blessing. What a great moment in Simon's life at the same time seemed to be such a, a torturous thing. The Bible says the key to life is to take up the cross, to die to self, and to serve the Lord. Live for yourself and you'll end up dying. Your life will be a drag. You'll be unhappy, cynical, bitter. You know what? I was in the mall just the other day shopping for Christmas presents and there was a girl at the store and she said, I'm mad at God right now. She was talking to somebody else. And the guy said, why are you mad at God? She said, because I just know he's not going to give me what I want. You know, there's this guy that I really like and I want to marry him. And, you know, this is the job I want. and This is the school I want to go to. And I'm just so mad at God right now because he won't give me what I want. And you know what? I don't want what I want. I want what God wants. How about you? Amen? You know what? If we, she said, you know what? It'll probably make me go be a, a missionary in the jungle somewhere. You know what? God will never make you go do something that, that you don't want to do. Amen? You know what? People who are missionaries in the jungle are not there by force. They're there out of joy. Amen? I mean, yeah, God might make me come at 8 o'clock and set up chairs. You know, there's people that come here two hours early and set up chairs. There's people who come and practice worship all week so we can enter into God's... It's a get-to and it's never a have-to. Amen? And that poor girl, and I, I tried to get over to talk to her and there's a huge line of people. I've been praying for her. I know where she works. I'm going to go back and talk to her. 
I was going to tell her, I was here when you were saying you're mad at God. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Amen? Seek Him first. Fall in love with the Lord, and you will have joy. But you know what? If we try to find it in anything else, we need to die to self. Die to being comfortable. You guys are doing that right now, sitting in the metal chairs, right? Verse 22. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Golgotha, in Latin, the word for Golgotha is Calvary. And that word means skull. They took him to the place of a skull. And there's a place right now in Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, where you can go, and you probably many of you may have seen pictures of it, and it looks just like a skull. And it's where people believe that Jesus was crucified. They took him outside of the city. And they took him there to be crucified. Verse 23. They gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. Now, gall and myrrh is basically the same word in the Greek language. Myrrh was used as a narcotic to deaden pain. And they offered Jesus a narcotic to deaden his pain. And he said no. Jesus was 100% in his right mind when he went to the cross. Amen? He was not going to deaden the price of pain. He was willing to suffer all of it. He did the will of God in its complete control of his, of his faculties. It's interesting to me that they tried to give him myrrh here. Where else do you see myrrh in the Bible? At his birth. What were his three gifts? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it's, it's kind of an odd gift to give somebody myrrh at their birth, but Jesus came to die. Myrrh was, like an, was something that you use also as an embalming fluid. So they gave it to him as a gift because he was a Savior who came to die. Verse 24, And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. This is a fulfillment of, of Psalm 22.8, which says that they will gamble for his clothing. John 19.28 tells us his garment was without seam and perfect, and that was one of the reasons they had to gamble for his clothes, because they couldn't tear him up. His, his clothes were seamless, just as he is perfect. Verse 25, Now in the third hour they crucified him. The third hour of the day in the Jewish time is 9 a.m. So remember, they've been trying him all night long. That Early that morning they brought Barabbas out and said, choose which one should be set free. And they cried out and said, let the robber go and send the king of the Jews to his death. So here it is at 9 a.m. they brought him out to be crucified. Verse 26, and the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. This is the first gospel tract in history. On Jesus around his neck and then above the cross where he was crucified, they wrote in Greek, Hebrew and Latin, so that every single person that walked by saw King of the Jews. When they walked by, they saw King of the Jews, and they saw Him suffering and dying that they might have eternal life. To me, this is the most ultimate picture of salvation. Here's who He says He is, and here's what He's doing for you. You know what? He is the King of the Jews. He's the King of all mankind. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the creator of the universe. And He hung on that cross, not because the nails held Him there, but out of His love for every one of us. Our God is a God of grace, of, of power, and of compassion. Now this is interesting to me, because look what it says in verse 27. With Him they also crucified two robbers, one on His right and the other on His left. So the Scripture was fulfilled and that says uh, that he was numbered with his transgressors. Now, it says in, in Isaiah 53, 12, that he would be numbered with his transgressors. And there Jesus is, the King of the Jews, the Alpha and the Omega, Almighty God. 
hanging on a cross next to two robbers. And the word robber there means that these were guys who pilfered. They probably were murderers too. These were heinous individuals. And they were hanging there, he was hanging there next to these two wicked, vile men. They were deserving of their death, but he was not. And we know the story of the thieves on the cross. These, again, were probably cohorts of Barabbas. Barabbas was, was the one that was supposed to be in the middle that day. But instead, they put Jesus there. And I want you to note that it's real important to notice that Jesus was there on the cross dying. But he was dying next to these sinful, wicked men. And we know that the response of these men was that they began first to ridicule Jesus. And they ridiculed him. And they mocked him. But as they heard Jesus' words, we know that one of them turned to him. Turned to the other and said, don't you know, quit talking to him that way. Don't you know who you're talking to? And he turned and he said to the Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus turned and said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Notice that he didn't tell him, get down off the cross and get baptized and live these 12 sacraments and then we'll see how it works out. It's not what he said, amen? He said, today you will be with me in paradise because it's Jesus Christ plus nothing equals salvation. Is baptism a good thing? Absolutely. Do we need to be baptized to be saved? The answer is no. Because if we say that we need to be baptized, we're saying Jesus' death on the cross was not enough. We're going to see in a minute it was sufficient. Amen? And so these thieves that were on the cross were sitting there and it was an opportunity for the gospel. And you've got to love the Lord that in the moment of His greatest trial, yet he's, as He's being separated from, all of, 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 separated from the Father because of the sins of all mankind being placed upon Him, He's still ministering to the thieves on the cross. That's our Savior. Got to love Him. Verse 29, And those who passed by blaspheming Him, waving their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroys a temple and build it up three days, in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Jesus was not crucified on a hill out in the middle of nowhere. Sometimes you see that. You see the crucifixion. It looks like there's, He's being crucified in this place out in the middle of nowhere and there's four people there. He was crucified on the roadside at the most busy time of year. Passover feast was about to take place. Thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people are walking by. And as they walked by, they mocked Him. They pointed at Him. And they said, if you're really God, then get down off the cross like you said you could. Now again, in my humanness, I wouldn't take that very long. Amen? As a human being, I would say, you know what? You know, that's okay. You're an onion, right? You know what I mean? You can turn them in anything you want. You're God, right? You can just smoke them. You're all frogs. That's it, you know? I'm starting over. I'd bring the angels down. Smoke them all. I mean, he could have done that. But yet he remained there and he stayed there. He took it all out of his love for us. And you know what? That's an example of how we should react when we are treated unfairly. Amen? Sometimes we want our rights, we want our way. It just doesn't seem fair that someone treats me that way. We are Christians. Christian means follower of Jesus Christ, amen? And if they treated Him that way and He continued to love them and show them compassion, should we not do the same? Amen? They shall know us by the love we have one for another. The temple Jesus spoke of was not the, the physical temple, but of His body that He would raise from the dead in three days. You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, they're going to see it happen in a spiritual sense. Verse 31, likewise, likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribe says, He saved others, himself he cannot save. It is true that Jesus had saved others, and they even admitted it. Who had Jesus saved? Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus had raised Jeru's daughter from the dead. He had healed the blind, he had healed the leper. They had seen him do miraculous works. And they could not deny the works that he had done. But instead of falling on their knees and confessing Him as Savior, 
what did they do? They said, well, he saved these other people, but himself he cannot save. You know what? It's interesting to me that the world wants a, a, a Christ, but it does not want a cross. The world has no problem talking about the baby in the manger. But I want to tell you something. He didn't stay in the manger. Amen? He grew up to be a man who lived a sinless, perfect life, who then suffered and died that we might have eternal life. People want a Christ consciousness. We live in Santa Cruz County, right? A cosmic spirituality. A harmonic convergence. They want the teaching of love and truth and oneness with the spirits of the world. But they don't want to talk about the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is an offense. The Bible says the cross of Christ is a stone of offense to those who are dying under sin, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen? The cross is the power of God. It's the most awesome thing that ever happened in the history of all mankind. Let me read something to you out of Matthew. You stay where you are. I don't want to have you chasing me all over the Bible. In Matthew 12, it says this. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, what sign will be a sign from you? And he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Indeed, greater than Jonah is here. What's the sign of Jonah? He said, you're seeking a sign? I'm going to show you the sign. It's the sign of Jonah. And it's going to be three days in the ground and he's going to raise from the dead. That's the sign. That's the ultimate sign that man needed to see. Verse 32. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with Him reviled Him. Again, those next to Him reviled Him. The thieves began to revile Him, but eventually their hearts were open to their need for Him as Savior. Let Him come down from the cross if He's really God. How many of you ever met somebody, they'll say to you, if Jesus Christ would appear to me in the flesh and talk to me, then I'll believe. How many of you ever heard that before? If God would just come down here and stand right in front of me and tell me, then, then I'll believe. No different than 2,000 years ago. Now we're going to see a separation from the Father. Verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now this should be something that would get their attention. The sixth hour is noon. How many times have you gone outside and it's pitch black at noon? doesn't happen. But from noon until 3 p.m., it was pitch black over the whole earth. It says there the whole land. The word there for land in the Greek is G, and it's where you get the word for geography, and it means earth. And the whole world was blanketed with darkness as Jesus took the sins of all mankind upon Himself and experienced separation from the Father. You know, it's interesting to me that when Jesus was born, a star shined in the darkness. Amen? And everybody ran to the star shining in the darkness. That's how they knew where the Savior was. But when He was crucified, darkness blanketed the earth. When the sin of all mankind was placed upon Him, it was no longer a star shining in the sky, but it was darkness upon the earth. As He was being killed, darkness covered the earth. And when man rejected the light of the world, he experienced the darkness. There were three days of darkness in Egypt before Passover. How many of you knew that? There were three days of, of darkness on the whole place of Egypt, covering Egypt for three consecutive days, and then the Passover came. The Passover lamb, and then the, the Passover where the eldest died. And it was what delivered them out of bondage. And here we are, 
a couple thousand years later, and there's three hours of darkness before the Lamb of God died for the sins of the world. Verse 34. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out and saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every time in the Bible other than this time, when Jesus Christ is talking to the Father, He uses the word Abba. The word Abba, the best translation today would be Daddy. One of my favorite words. I've told you that before. I love Daddy. I've got four kids and I love being called Daddy. It's one of my favorite. I love my kids get, come get in my lap and call me Daddy. I love that. And that was the relationship that God the Son had with God the Father and He called Him Abba. But this time He does not call Him Abba. This time it's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Habakkuk 1.13 says this, you are, pure, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Speaking of God. It says in 1 Corinthians 5.21, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. The Father had no choice but to turn away from Jesus Christ when all the sin of all mankind was placed upon Him. Why? Because perfect light and darkness cannot coexist. So for this moment, for these, I believe, these three hours, from noon until three, there was this pouring out of the sin of all mankind. That's why there was darkness. God turned His eyes away. God the Father. Now I want to make this clear. Jesus Christ is God and He never ceased to be God. Amen? He was not stopped being God for those three hours. He's always God. He always will be God. He always has been. Amen? I am the same. He, he, before the foundation of the world, he, He's existed. But you can hear the agony of isolation in Jesus' words as He says, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? You know what's awesome to me? He cried out those words so we won't have to. Amen? When I stand before God, I'm going to deserve to be separated from Him for all eternity because He is perfect light and I am sinful man. He is perfect God and I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. But you know what's going to be awesome is Jesus is going to step forward and say, It's okay, He's with me. And I'm going to enter into, into heaven, not because of my good works, not because I'm the pastor of Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz, but because Jesus Christ paid the price that I could not pay. Amen? And praise the Lord for that. And even as he was dying, Jesus was cluing them in because what he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is quoted from Psalm 22. If these guys had been reading their Bible, they would have known that that was a messianic term. And they would have said, he's the Messiah. And people have missed Jesus Christ as the Messiah today because they don't read the Bible. The number one problem in the world today is biblical illiteracy. We know all about the batting averages of everybody on our favorite baseball team. And we you know, we know what time our favorite TV show comes on TV, but we can't find Scripture. We can't find things in the Word of God to point people to their need for a Savior. And I'm not getting on you. I'm just saying, hey, maybe our priorities have gotten a little messed up. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They should have known that that was from Psalm 22. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the Word of God. They were walking in darkness because they did not comprehend the light of the Word of God. People walk around stumbling in the dark because they do not have the light of God's Word. Verse 35. Some of those who stood by said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. According to John 19.28, at this point, Jesus had said, I thirst. You know, it's interesting. There's seven sayings of Jesus in, on the cross, and there's only one recorded in the Gospel of Mark. Remember, Mark is the Gospel of action. Not a lot of detail. It just goes from event to event to event. 
but I'm filling some of the stuff in. He said, I thirst. And they went and they brought wine to him. And the reason they brought it to him is because they thought maybe he was going to call Elijah down from the sky. They knew he had done miracles. Let's give him some wine. Maybe he'll survive a little longer. Let's see if Elijah truly does come down. Verse 37. Yeah, verse 37. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. You know what Jesus said there? He said, Tetalistai. We sang a song this morning, Tetalistai. That word means, it is finished. Amen? He cried out and breathed his last and said, it is finished. When Jesus died on the cross, all the work, all the debt, all the payment for all the sin of all mankind was done. Amen? The word there, Tetalistai, is the word that was used when someone would pay a debt. You would go in and you owed somebody money and they'd have a promissory note against you and you would come in and you would give them the money to pay off the debt and they would take the note and they would stamp on the note to Talestai, paid in full. It is finished. All done. You owe me nothing. You know what? When Jesus died on the cross, to Talestai, it was paid in full. It's finished. No one knows anything apart from what Jesus did for him on the cross. Amen? What an awesome thing, to Talestai. And you know what? I love it says there, his life, his life was not taken from him, but he gave it up freely. Now look what happened next. I love this, verse 38. So when the centurion, oh excuse me, verse 38, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In Leviticus 17, God declared that there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. In the Garden of Eden, when do we see the, what happens after the first sin? When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden, the first thing that God did was He slayed an animal and He covered them up with animal skins. They'd covered themselves up with leaves. It wasn't sufficient. It was their own works. Picture their own works. We'll not cover them. So Jesus, God, killed an animal and covered them up with the skins. So the first time we see shedding of blood in the Bible is for the covering of sin. Amen? It hasn't changed thousands of years later. What happens here is that Jesus must pay the price through the shed blood on the cross. People don't like that picture. People like, don't want, oh, I like the baby, don't talk to me about blood. That's, that's, ah. Hey, he paid the price for the sin of all mankind. The gift of salvation is a free gift, but it was not cheap. Amen? The nation of Israel can only experience the forgiveness of sin on a single day each year, the Day of Atonement, also known today as Yom Kippur. Do you wonder what Yom Kippur is? It's the Day of Atonement. And back in those days, what would happen is, the priest would go into that most holy of holy place, and they would take in the the blood of rams and goats and lambs that had been sacrificed in the courtyard, and they would take it through this veil. Now let me tell you about this veil. It was 60 feet tall. It was 30 feet wide. It was 10 inches thick. It was so heavy, it took 300 priests to put it into place. And they left, there was this big veil between man and God. And you could only enter that most holy place on the Day of Atonement when you would pay for the prices of sins pointing toward the coming Messiah. And so this is what was happening. And what's interesting to me was that if any man went into that most holy place any other time, you know what happened to him? It struck down dead. So this most holy place waited for the Day of Atonement. But when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to that veil? It was torn, not from bottom to top like a man would do, but from top to bottom as if God Himself reached down from heaven and ripped that veil. That veil that 300 men had to put in place. That veil that was 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide and 10 inches thick. 
God reached down and tore it open. And what is that a picture of? It's a picture that we don't need to wait for Yom Kippur anymore. Amen? We don't have to give blood to the high priest that he can go make sacrifice for us. We can enter into the Holy of Holies anywhere, any day, any time, and God is waiting to meet us there. Amen? That's why we can pray when we're driving down the road on the freeway. Amen? You can pray in your, in your house. You can pray at church. You know what? Being at church doesn't make you closer to God, although being at church is a good thing. Amen? When we come, we fellowship. We encourage one another. We use the gifts God's given us. But you can be just as close to God, and I think sometimes closer, sitting at home, by your bed, one-on-one, hanging out with the Lord. Amen? I want to encourage you to do that. And so the veil was torn, and I love that, that we can enter into that most holy place. When Jesus said, it is finished, the veil was torn. The Holy of Holies became open for us. You know what, guys? We don't need priests anymore. Some of you may have grown up Catholic, and I apologize, but that's reality. We don't need priests anymore. If someone says, I need a priest, you don't need a priest. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is the great high priest, the Bible says. Amen? He is the mediator seated at the right hand of the Father. I don't need to go ask another man for his permission so that I can enter into God's presence anymore. The veil's been torn. Amen? And that's not slamming anybody. That's celebrating the fact that it is finished. Tetalistai. Amen? What an awesome thing. I don't, aren't you glad there aren't 47 layers between you and God? There aren't 27 rituals. There's not 12 rules. It's one God with one Savior, one mediator, Jesus Christ. Buddha is not seated at the right hand of the Father. Amen? Hare Krishna's not there. And Rudolph did not die on the cross, right? It was Jesus. And we need to keep the focus where it belongs. He, the veil was torn, was a triumph over sin. Now, I want to tell you something. In Matthew 27, I was going to read it, but I'm not going to. You know what happened when Jesus died on the cross? There was an earthquake. And the earthquake was what shook the earth. So now it's been pitch black for three hours. He says it's finished. The earth starts shaking. And I imagine with God, it wasn't a small one. Amen? And the earthquake so much, it says the rocks were split open and dead people got up out of the ground and started walking around. It's in Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to read it. I don't want you to hear my opinion. Here's what it says. Matthew 20. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the grave, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Looking for a sign, Pharisees? How about that one? How about dead people getting up and walking into the city? You think that's a good enough sign to get your attention? How about pitch blackness over the earth? How about the fact that in the middle of the day, and there's another sign yet coming, we're going to see it next week, when Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Man, I love this. The Bible's so awesome. Can you imagine people have been dead a thousand years, they're just walking into Jerusalem. There's Aunt Emma who died last month. You know, hey, what, what? I was at your, walking into the city. I mean, Lazarus was a constant testimony. Man, you know what? And that's what we ought to be as Christians. We used to be dead in our sins, and we've been made alive in Jesus Christ. Amen? And when we walk into the city, people should say, Man, I knew you when, and you're not that dead guy anymore. Right? Something's happened to you, and what happened to me was Jesus Christ. What an awesome thing. Verse 39, So when the centurion who had stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. The religious leaders missed it. Pilate missed it, and this centurion, this Roman soldier sitting at the foot of the cross, saw it. He was there. 
He was in His presence. He saw the darkened sky. He felt the earthquake. He heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He heard Him say, It is finished. And there's only one conclusion for this man who saw all this. It was to confess Jesus Christ. Truly, this was the Son of God. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. Amen? That's it. There's salvation right there. Well, don't I have to go to some classes? No. Don't I have to, don't I have to keep some... No. Don't I have to go to the thing and get the baptismal certificate? And Don't I have to have water sprinkling on my head? And it, no, you don't. It is finished. Amen? All it is, is Jesus Christ plus nothing. Jesus' words fulfilled prophecy, His beatings, His scourgings, the plucking of His beard, the silence before His accusers, the sky darkened from noon to three, the earthquake, the veil being torn from top to bottom, the graves being opened, and yet they still didn't believe. You know what? If God Almighty appeared in front of unbelieving man, He still would not believe. Why? Because faith, they need faith. They need to have a, a desire and a willingness to trust God. The rocks will cry out His name. We have plenty of things that have shown us that He truly is God. It's an awesome God. Verse 40. There are also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and Hoses and Salome, who also followed Him, ministered to Him when He was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with Him to Jerusalem. The only disciple that was at the cross when Jesus died was John. Bible says in Mark 14:50 a few weeks ago that all his disciples fled when he was captured. But look and notice that women were there looking on from afar. And you know what? Praise the Lord for godly women. Amen. All the guys who walk with Jesus bailed. The women who had ministered at his feet, who had taken care of his basic daily needs, the the ones who wa- the woman who washed his feet, the woman who had been filled with demons. You know, it's interesting to me that that there was a woman there. Where were these women? They were there when he was. Um, beaten, they were there when he was crucified, and they were there at his resurrection. Amen? Hadn't Jesus told them over and over and over again, on the third day I'm going to be resurrected? So all the disciples were down to the tomb on the third day, right? No. Who was there? The women. Praise the Lord for godly women. Amen? Matthew 23, I think it's interesting that Mary, the mother of James, and John, the sons of thunder, had asked Jesus... Let my sons be at your right and your left hand side when you come into your kingdom. Can you imagine if she looked up at the cross? Jesus is now coming into his kingdom. What had she really been asking for? Cross was on the right and left hand side. Remember he asked them, can you take the cup? They had no idea what they were asking for. And she saw it very clearly in front of her. We don't know what we ask for sometimes when we talk to the Lord. As, as she looked at Jesus upon the cross, a man being crucified, her heart must have skipped and said, wow. Again, praise the Lord for these women. Verse 42. Lastly, we're going to look at the last five verses. Jesus is buried. Now when evening had come, because it was preparation day, that is the day of the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming, king of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. John tells us that Nicodemus accompanied Joseph. Nicodemus was the man in John chapter 3 who came to Jesus by night. He was the Pope of the day in a sense. He was one of the religious leaders. He came in and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, hey, you're the Pope, just go be holy. No, he didn't tell him that. He said, you must be born again. Amen? When I wear the robes, I live at the church. I, you know, hey, I'm the guy. No, you're not holy enough. 
He said, you must be born again. And here's Nicodemus on Jesus' death coming to bury him. Also, we see Joseph of Arimathea. Now, it's interesting to note that up until this point, these guys had been undercover Christians. These guys had not been identified with Jesus Christ yet until this moment. And when they did what they did, it was a pretty awesome thing. Because they were defiling themselves. You've got to remember, this was Passover. They had actually sent someone out to break Jesus' legs to hurry up his death because they wanted to get him in the ground before Passover started because they didn't want to defile Passover. I mean, it's comical. We've got to keep our rituals. We've got to get Jesus out of the way so we can keep our rituals. You know, a lot of churches do the same thing. Let's get Jesus out of the way so we can keep our rituals. You know, if we talk about Jesus too much, we talk about sin too much, and we talk about our need for a Savior too much, then people might not come back to our church. And it's all about having people. You know, a lot of churches become religious country clubs because they don't have Jesus there. Amen? We need to have Jesus here. And what happened was that these guys went and they brought him down, and when they did, they defiled themselves. They could now not take of the Passover feast. They stopped being undercover Christians when they went and removed him from the cross. And you know what? May this be an example to us that we would not be undercover Christians, that we would want to be identified with Jesus Christ when the, when the cross comes up in conversation. Verse 44, Pilate marveled that he was, that he was already dead, and some of the centurion, he asked if he had been dead for some time. So when they found out from the centurion, he granted the body of Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in linen, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Now, what's interesting again is that the Bible says that Jesus... Would, that he would be numbered with the wicked, but, in his, but with the rich in his death. And who, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, and that's where Jesus was buried. And by, again, by going to him, they were risking everything. At the very least, they had defiled themselves, and again, when they took him down from the cross, they could no longer be involved with the religious rituals. The religious leaders wanted to hasten the crucifixion, again, so as not to, to defile the Passover but I love the fact that Joseph and Nicodemus, two very religious men in the past, didn't care about the Passover anymore because they had found the Lamb of God. Amen? We found the Lamb of God. Who cares about that? We found the Lamb of God. The veil's been torn. We can enter in. We can know Him in an intimate and a personal way. The disciples are in hiding, but the women are at the tomb. Look what it says. And Mary Magdalene and, and the mother of Jesus observed where He was laid. How did they know where to go? On Resurrection Day, they went and saw where He had been buried. And then they showed up when Jesus was crucified. Mark 10 says this, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, scourge Him, spit on Him, and kill Him. And on the third day, He will rise again. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. They should have heard that on the third day he would raise from the dead, but on the third day they were nowhere in sight. If they had heard his words and believed, they would have been camped out by the tomb. And what's interesting to me is that while they did not believe, let me close with this, the enemies did. Because what happens? It says this in Matthew 27. You don't need to turn there, but let me just read it to you. It says in verse 62 to 66 of Matthew 27. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was alive how the deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command the tomb to be secure under the third day, unless his disciples come by night, steal him away, and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. 
So Pilate said to them, You have a guard, go your way and make it secure as you know. So they went out and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, a lot of times you see in, in Bible stories two guards, but the, uh, a watch of guards was 50. 50. So watch of guards meant there was 50 soldiers and they rolled the stone in front and they sealed it with the, with the signet ring of the of Pilate and they said, nobody can touch this. If anybody touched it, it was at the curse of death. You know what's awesome to me? Without even realizing it, they were playing in to proving that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead by the precautions they took to keep someone from stealing his body. And by the way, we're going to see next week when, he, when God raises from the dead that the stone was rolled away. They didn't need to roll the stone away for Jesus Christ to get out. Amen? The stone was rolled away so man could see in that he had already gotten out. Amen? All of this was of God. None of this would have been possible. Again, to steal his body, nobody can say that that's what happened anymore because what they, the precautions that they took to keep him in the grave. Worship team, why don't you guys come on back up. I want to say this in closing. Today's study compared to next week. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Amen? It doesn't end right there. Because three days later, he's going to be risen. We do not serve a dead God. We serve a risen, living Savior. Jesus endured mocking, scourging, beatings, humiliation, and crucifixion, the most painful of all deaths, all out of his love for us. And may we not allow discomforts of life to keep us from denying ourselves, taking up the cross, and following Him. Sometimes, I want to say this up right up front, guys. Sometimes being a Christian means that it's going to be uncomfortable. But you know what? This is not our world, you guys. Amen? This is not our home. And you know what? I want to be uncomfortable if it's going to further the kingdom of God. I have to confess to you openly, I get most excited when things get difficult. I was in Russia one time and they were bombing the White House in Russia and I've got 30 teenagers with me and we're supposed to go to the school right next to the White House in Russia in an hour. And all I could do, I was fired up because I knew God was going to do something awesome. You know what? Our God is in control. Our God is faithful. And you know what? When tough things happen, it makes you want to stay charged. One of the reasons I'm in Santa Cruz County, one of the darkest counties on the planet, if you don't know that, Right? One of the reasons that I know that we're here is because this is a dark place that is in great need of the greatest light ever. Amen? And the light of the world is Jesus Christ. May we not be ashamed of Him. May we get excited when difficulties come, knowing God will use it for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for Your death upon the cross, and we thank You that we can know You in an intimate and a personal way, that it's not about religion and rituals, but it's about a relationship with the Creator of the universe. So Lord, I just ask, Father, that if there's anybody here this morning that does not know you, that they would not walk out of here without you, Father. That as we worship, just minister to their hearts to see their need for you as Savior. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you so much for the greatest act of love in the history of all mankind, that you were willing to die, that we might have eternal life, that you were willing to face death, that we won't have to. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's worship. Can you stand with us and I know I wanted to stand up.